Okay, we're going to dig into, into Haggai. So if you have your Bibles, you're going to want to get them open. The day today is split up into three different sessions on Haggai. Uh, hopefully you saw that on the bookmark schedule that you got. This first opening talk, we're going to go through the whole first chapter. Haggai 1, verses 1 to 15. And Haggai 1, verses 1 to 15, is a very ancient text written many, or spoken, prophesied many, 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 many centuries ago. And yet there is so much relevance for us today. It is uncanny. As I was preparing for this, it's crazy how this book spoke to me and corrected me and comforted me and challenged me and just got me excited about who God is and what he has done for us, especially what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. But this opening chapter, this opening oracle, if you were here last night, Alexa helped us with the word oracle. That's, there's four oracles in this book, which just means a speech that is from the Lord. It's thus says the Lord. Um, this first oracle given by Haggai the word of the Lord through Haggai is all about priorities. Isn't that funny? Because we have priorities today, but they had priorities way back then too. It's all about priorities. I have priorities. You have priorities. We all share this necessity of having priorities. I know there's some of us in this room whose schedules are super duper busy and we are all about priorities. Right, we know like what we have to do, what, what, what's of most importance, and then what comes down the list. But there might be others in this room that don't deal with busy, 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 but maybe it's more the, well, I don't really know what to do with my life, or I, I don't, or maybe you're busy and you don't know what to do with your life, or it, honestly, it could even be a life of, of some laziness. And you're actually not prioritizing things that should be prioritized. So it doesn't matter if you are like ad, um, if you are actively thinking about having priorities. You have them. You spend your time and you spend your money in certain ways. That the way you do those things show what your priorities actually are. It's just a reality for all of us. We all share in this necessity of having priorities. And that is what this chapter is going to speak about to us this morning, is about priorities. Because there comes a time when we realize we've really flipped our priorities. Right? There comes a time when we realize, and it might be, from Haggai chapter 1, that we realize our priorities have gotten out of whack. And we need to get them right. The Lord needs to help us get it right. Life happens to all of us. And sometimes the most important things get forgotten. I mean, we, the things that are frequently most important to us are the things that are right in front of us. Things that we can see and touch and feel. But perhaps there's something else, someone else, that we can't see and touch right now, and we forget about them. 
Well, God wants to turn our attention away from these things that are, that are prioritized over him and he wants to be in the rightful place of number one top priority in our lives. That's what chapter one is about. It is about God wanting our priorities to be him. Or put another way, God wants our priorities to be, or our number one priority to be his glory. And we're going to see that in this chapter, that God wants our priority to be his glory. So I'm going to read it for us. We read through the whole book last night, but I'm just going to read the first chapter for us here. If you like to follow some sort of outline as we go through, I have, um, there's two sections to this chapter. The first one comes in verses 1 to 11, and it's, I'm, I'm titling it, the reality of our priorities. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time in verses 1 to 11. The reality of our priorities. And then verses 12 to 15 is the reordering of our priorities. The reordering of our priorities. So we're going to see the reality of, the, of our priorities and then how we should reorder them. All right, let me read for us. Haggai 1, 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the second month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed. The voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts their God on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let me just pray for our time this morning. God, we pray that you would open our ears so we may hear you 
through your word. We pray that you would open our eyes so that we may see you in your word. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts so that we may love you more because of what we read in your word. May you do this today for us. We trust you will. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you were here last night, you heard about the um, war-torn and ravaged situation of the Israelites in the beginning of this book. Right? Do you all remember that? That in the timeline of history, where we are in the, this opening oracle of Haggai, the people of Israel had been sent to exile and they had been brought back to the promised land, brought back to Israel, and Israel was not their home. Or Jerusalem did not feel like home. It was war-torn. It was ravaged. But despite the war-torn and ravaged sense of their land, they sought to rebuild their temple. They sought to bring it back. They sought to bring their land back to its former glory. And thankfully, this Darius, the king, and this is a foreign king, by the way. This is not the king of Israel. This is the king of a foreign nation. Darius, the king, and the guy that uh, was right before him encouraged them to build the temple. When they came back from exile, they wanted, these foreign kings actually wanted the Israelites to rebuild their temple. Well, Haggai comes to speak with a message to the people of Israel. He comes to them in the second year of Darius the king, which means it's probably about 520 B.C. I'm not saying that just for our history lessons. I'm saying that because we're going to do some math lessons a little bit later. But they came in, in 520 B.C. Actually, let's just do the math right now. That will help us to set us straight on where we're going. They had returned from exile about 539, 538 B.C., and now it's 520. So they've been back in the land for 18 years. Okay, they've they've been back in their war-torn, ravaged land for 18 years. And what does Haggai say in relation to the house of the Lord? Because that's what this book is about. This book is about the rebuilding of the temple. What does he say? Take a look in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, that is God's people, they say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And he elaborates then in in verse 4, he goes on to say, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Do Do you hear what he's saying to them about their priorities? The people say, well, there's a time for building their houses, and there's a time for building God's house, and what time do you think it is right now? Well, they think it's time to build their houses, their paneled houses. I know paneling isn't that popular anymore today, but paneling, when it was popular, it was the big deal when you could put paneling up in your house. Now... Is, is this a big deal? I've already said it's a big deal to build the temple, so you already know the answer. But why is God so concerned with them 
you know, just getting their houses together. It's war-torn and ravaged. They want, I mean, why wouldn't God want them to get their lives back in order by building their houses? Why is he so concerned with the building of the temple? Why should that come first? Well, we heard a little bit about it last night, but for those of us who weren't here, years and years and years before this, King David, great King David, wanted to build a temple. He wanted to build a house for the Lord. At that time, in King David's time, all they had was a temporary tabernacle. This tabernacle that they could pick up and move as they wandered in the wilderness and then wandered from place to place. But now that King David was in Jerusalem, he wanted a permanent temple. A place for God to dwell with his people. That's what he wanted. Because the temple, and this is so key for us. This is key for the whole book and even for us as Christians. The temple is the place where God manifests his presence. It's where God manifests his glory. It's where God comes to be with his people. Yes, God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But where does he come meet with his people? In the temple. And the temple is where he meets with his people. And friends, I just just have to say, that's amazing. That a holy God would want to come meet with an unholy people. I mean, we know, we know our own hearts, and some of us know each other's hearts. And I don't know if anybody's confessing sins on their trivia note card, but we know we're all sinners. And the fact that God wants to dwell with us is pretty incredible. By every sense of that word, incredible, it's, it's not credible. It's like, how can that be? That a holy God would want to be with, a holy, with an unholy people, and yet he does. He wants to have fellowship with his people, even though we've gone astray. He wants to show his glory to his people. Because the temple is where God manifests his glory. He wants to show his glory to his people. And we even see that in verse 8. When he calls them to build the house, he wants them to build it so that he may be glorified. He wants his glory to be shown. But with the temple in ruins, that is really bad news for God's people. Because when the temple is not there, that means God is not there. Because the temple is where God meets with his people. And if the temple is not there, God doesn't meet with his people. So we know, why is the temple in ruins? It's because decades before this, it was destroyed by the enemy. It was destroyed by Babylon. It says at the end of Second Chronicles, they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. But now King Darius, this foreign king, he has compassion on God's people and he wants them to rebuild. I mean, that's super exciting to think about King David's vision of the permanent temple where God can be with his people and show his glory, it had been ruined, and now the foreign king says rebuild. The people should be ecstatic about this. (coughs) Like, yes, we want to do this. 
We can't wait to do this. We've been in exile for all these years. We're, we're back in our, our land. We want to rebuild. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, when you, you, you anticipate um, turning 16 so you can drive a car and you've waited and you've waited and you've waited and you've gone through all the courses and the classes and finally it's your birthday and you can go get that driver's license and drive on your own. Like you're so excited for that moment. Or it's like when you're um, wanting to go to a conference and, and you're waitlisted because it's all full and the second that you get noticed that you can get into that conference, you register and pay right away so you get your spot. Right? You're, it's, it's this anticipation of we want to get back to our land and we want to rebuild the temple. And so they get back to their land and they don't build the temple. Why aren't they building the temple? Why aren't they running out to Home Depot to gather supplies saying, it's time, it's, it's the day. Why aren't they doing that? In the very beginning of their return, we know from the book of Ezra that they faced opposition. We know that's true. We, we know that it was difficult, right? So let's cut them some slack. It was difficult. They, they had people that were trying to stop them. It, it, was, it was hard. And, and I think the word Alexa used last night was they appeased, Israel appeased the people of the land. Is that what you said? I wrote it down. They appeased the people of the land by just not building the temple. It was easier for them that way to not have that confrontation. But the thing is, it's been 18 years of appeasement. It's been 18 years of saying, well, it's just too hard. I mean, it's been 18 years of saying, well, maybe, you know, maybe it'll be, be, be better next year. If we can do it next year. I mean, can you imagine if God told you to rebuild the temple and you told him, ah, it's really hard, God. I'm not sure I can do it. Can you imagine saying that to God? Or, or maybe you're not saying it with your words, but you're certainly saying it with your actions. Now, to be fair to them, we know from the book of Ezra that they did set up an altar and they were offering sacrifices. So they were doing something, okay? But, well, let me just read this verse from the book of Ezra. It says, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but... Here's a big old but, and it's not a good but. Sometimes there's good buts in the Bible, but this is a bad but. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not laid. It wasn't laid. I mean, how are they offering sacrifices when they don't have the temple to offer them in? They were figuring it out in their own way. And their delay to build this temple went on year after year after year after year for 18 years. And that's why Haggai says in verse 4, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? I mean, you can hear the mockery in Haggai's voice and the rebuke in God's word. You've decided that instead of working on my house, you're going to work on your own house? I mean, do we believe we would do different? Or do we believe we 
do differently today? We have to remember the importance of the temple and what it means, God with us. We have to remember that the temple and what it means, God's glory being shown. The people, instead of thinking about God with us and his glory being manifested, the people think about their own comfort. And I'm saying this like being cut to the heart myself. We're thinking about our own comfort instead of thinking about being in communion with God. And so verse 5 says bluntly, consider your ways. Or your translation might say, give careful thought to your ways. Think about what you're doing. Consider. Consider your ways. Consider how we fail to put God first. Consider. Are we more concerned with our own comfort appeasing the people than with actually being with God in his place. Consider how our priorities have flipped, perhaps without even knowing it, and that we have reprioritized to put ourselves above our God. I mean, let's just get practical here. Are we in the throes of raising children and we're just trying to squeeze in time for God when we got it. Or maybe we've raised children and we're in the time of retirement and we're like, you know what? I need a break. I've done this for a long time. Do we have every intention of being in God's word every day? And I'm, you know, I just... I got to push snooze one more time and two more times and and I don't have time to read before work so I'm going to read after work and then I'm just really too tired after the long day and then the whole day goes and then there's the next day and then the next day and then the next day and then 18 years quickly happen without even knowing it. Do we desire a prayer life? Because we have an amazing God, the creator of the heavens and the earth that we can speak to and pray to do we seek to have a prayer life and yet we realize we haven't really committed any time to prayer at all or we've said we would pray for that dear sister that we saw on the retreat and now it's you know january 1 and have i prayed for her i can't remember right we could have every intention to do these things and then time just slips away we must consider, I think what Haggai is telling us, is we must consider how we spend our time and our treasures. I mean, just look at your calendar and look at your checkbook. What do those say about how you prioritize God? And I shouldn't say you, I should say we. Like, look at my calendar and look at my checkbook. How am I showing my commitment to my God? Now, as I think about these things, I mean, a, f a friend pointed out the irony of some of this. Here's the irony, that raising kids is a good thing, right? It's good to be, like, concerned about your kids and giving them your best, spending your time with them. Um, doing a good job at work is a good thing. 
like putting in your hours and um, helping the company or what, or helping patients or teaching students. I mean, this is a really good thing. Even in retirement, like enjoy life. You, why not? I mean, these are actually, they're not sinful things. They're, they're really good things. Like putting paneling in your living room is fine. It's not wrong, right? It's, well, <laughs> wallpaper. Wallpaper, that's coming back. It's making a comeback, you know. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not wrong to decorate in whatever beautiful form you see beauty in. Yeah. It's not wrong. It's not sin. This is, this is, this is normal stuff. Normal, everyday people do this stuff. But we serve a God who is not a normal, everyday God. We don't. We, we, we may do normal, everyday things, but our God is not a normal, everyday God. He is an extraordinary God. He's a, he's a God of glory. He's a glorious God. So what happens then when, when normal, everyday people do normal, everyday things and don't think about their extraordinary God? Well, let's see. Verse 6 tells us what happens when we just go about our lives. Verse 6 says, You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Their lives have no fruit. Their efforts to live normal, everyday lives produce no fruit. In fact, it has an, a, a, an opposite effect. It has an adverse effect on their lives. Something's gone terribly wrong with their agricultural system. The, they, they, they are in, I mean, reading this verse, they are in dire straits. Why? Why, why, why is it so bad for them? Well, verse 9 tells us the answer. Verse 9 says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, here's the answer, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Why is their agricultural system in dire straits? Because they are so consumed in their own lives, they have left no place for God. And this is the truth of the situation. God is cursing them for it. That's a tough word to hear, isn't it? But it says in that verse 9, I blew it away. When you brought it home, when you went out to do your normal everyday sowing of the seed and reaping of the harvest, I blew it away. That is a really tough word to hear. But it has been 18 years, and God has to get their attention. It's like he's taking their face, putting his hands on it, saying, Look at me. 
look at me. I mean, if you have kids, you know what the, the importance of look me in the eye means. Look at me. Let me get your attention. I can't get your attention any other way, so I'm going to blow away your food. Listen to me. Verse 10 says, The heavens above you have withheld the dew. I mean, he's the the controller of the heavens, right? The heavens have, have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I, that is God, their glorious God, I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on the ground, what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. I mean, can you just see the totality of it? It is just everything is being affected by God, by their God. It, 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 I think there's another irony here in this. It's because they have prioritized their own lives over God. God has actually used that against them. They have been working on their houses, but they've also been working on retilling their fields, right? And, you know, getting their livelihood back. And God's going to use that very thing to turn them around. He's going to use that very thing to make them see that their priorities have been out of whack. And I just wonder if there's some of us here who are in this situation right now. Like, you feel like life is out of whack. Like, this is hard. Life is really hard. And I'm, I don't think every hard thing in life is this. I mean, it's not. But this is the book of Haggai, and Haggai is saying that sometimes hardships come to us for, by God himself to get our attention. It's not, hardships aren't always that. That's not always the point of them. But in this sense, it is. And for some of us here today, that, this might be a word direct to us that we need to hear. Is God trying to get your attention? Is he trying to say, wake up and listen to me? Consider your ways. I think we should feel, I think we probably already do feel, the correction in this. But in the correction, there is immense comfort. There is immense comfort in this correction. While God corrects our wrong ways, he's doing it to reorder our priorities to be the right Priorities. If God is trying to get our attention right now through a hardship, take great comfort that He's doing it for your good. He is. He knows what is best, He knows what our priorities should be. And here is what He wants you to do. If you're feeling cut to the heart and you're like, okay, and maybe you're not even experiencing a hardship. Maybe, like, life is fine. And maybe it's, like, year 14 of the 18 years, and you're, it's, the crop ain't that bad yet, right? So thank God, his grace, he's brought you this word today before it's, you know, so far gone, before your bag has, like, 50 holes in it instead of just one hole. Here's what he wants you to do. It's in verse 8. This direct command that he gives us in verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood 
and build the house. Go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house. It's actually not that hard, right? It's not that hard to follow what God has asked us to do. Why does he want us to do this? He says the reason, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. He wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. Isn't that, I already said it's incredible. Isn't that incredible now that we think about if we're cut to the heart of how we have not prioritized God and you hear him say to you right now through Haggai, it's okay. I want to be with you. Go build the house. I mean, isn't that great comfort in the correction? That he wants to be with us, even if it's been 18 years? It's an extraordinary thing for a normal, everyday people to get this glorious God. And if this is true, that he wants to be with us so much, if this is true, that he wants to have his glory on display, why wouldn't this God be our priority? Like, what other evidence do we need to convince us that he should be first? Why wouldn't we seek to glorify him? This is a turning point for us. We're, we're, we're now between verses 11 and 12, and there's like this turning point. Which way are they going to go? Which way will the Israelites go? We have a choice too. Which way will we go? What, at the turning point, what will happen? And as Alexis said last night, what happens is... is not common for God's people. Most prophets in their ministry don't see turning points. They don't see change in God's people. But the book of Haggai shows such promise and that they change, that they actually turn. They actually choose the right way. They choose God. Look at there at verse 12. And he includes everybody in this in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, all the remnant of the people, all of them, what do they do? They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the word of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. There's our action point. They obeyed the Lord, the word of the Lord, and they feared him, everyone, from Governor Zerubbabel to Joshua the high priest to all the remnant of the people. They all obeyed. And it's beautiful because it's what God wants. He wants them to reorder their priorities, and they do. They rightly recognize God to be the God of glory that he is. Rebuilding, them obeying, their obedience is showing their reprioritization of God in 
their lives of putting God first. So then look what God says to them in verse 13, because they obey. It's very different than a drought. It's very different than blowing away their crop. If their priorities were were wrong before and there was a certain response, well, look at God's response to them when their priorities are right. He says to them in verse 13, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you. They already know this. They already know that's what the temple represents. They know this. And, by the way, the temple isn't actually built yet. And God says, I'm with you. I mean, these have got to be comforting words here. That they've been oppressed by foreign nations. That it's been really hard returning home. And God is saying, just by the, the, just seeing you obey my word, I want you to know and be assured that I am with you. Now, we know it's not because we obey that God is with us. No, God is with us. He is already, I mean, he's already been talking to them. He has been with them by blowing away their seed. He has been with them by calling for a drought on the land and the hills. He's been with them. He has been with them. But now they've turned, and he's just reminding them again, even before the temple is fully complete, you need to know, you need to hear, I am with you. I am with you, and I'm going to stir you up to work. That's what verse 14 says. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, and he stirs up the spirit of Joshua, and he stirs the spirit of all the remnant of the people so that they come and they work on the house of the Lord, the Lord of hosts, their God. Now we know I am with you is significant for us today. I mean, we already got a clue last night that the temple points to Christ. But even just the phrase, I am with you, hopefully we recognize that itself because there's another prophet who said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So even before we've obeyed, God sent his son to be with us. Even when we were in rebellion and putting God off, God sent his son to pay for the sin of putting him off. Even even when we have committed our lives to Christ and said, you're with me, I'm with you, and then I forget about him for a while, he doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. It is God with us us. Well, I hope this encourages us to see that it isn't too late. It's never too late. It is never, ever too late to go up to the hills, to bring wood, and build the house. 
And today, because we have God with us in the form of the Holy Spirit indwelling our bodies, the building work that we have to do is not with, with wood and bricks and stone. The building work that we have to do is with human hearts. It's, it's working alongside God as he does the work to build up the people of God. Because today, the people of God is where the Lord manifests his presence. This room right here is where the Lord manifests his glory. Right here. So the building work that we have to do is to build one another up, to, to, to build up and encourage and exhort to endure. And then there's also a call of building out, building out to bring more people in, building the body of Christ by speaking the gospel so that others see the glorious God that we know that we've rightly prioritized in our lives. We want to share that good news of our glorious God with other people to build up this temple. We want to listen to this word to go up to the hills. I mean, hey, we're, well, I guess we're on the top of the hill. Let's go down the hill and tell those teenagers down there in that camp, do you know the glorious God? I do. I know him, and he wants to know you, and he wants to be with you. He wants to be with them. He wants to be with us. He wants his glory to be our priority. Let me pray as we consider these truths. God, we are cut to the heart with this correction that we hear about our priorities and what they say about your place in our lives. We are cut to the heart. And yet, Lord, we are comforted we are comforted that you have not forsaken us, but that you are with us. We are comforted by your spirit stirring us up into action, that we don't do this work alone, that it's not up to us to build the house on our own, but it's your spirit that works in us. You build the house through us. We know that's true. So Lord, would you then help us glorify you? Would you help us bring you glory? Would you help us make you first? We trust you'll do this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.